Lesson 13 for March 23 to 29, I Make All Things New. Sabbath afternoon, March 23. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to the last lesson in this series on the book of Revelation. Some of the lessons have been difficult to understand, but we thank you that because of your Holy Spirit, so many things are so much clearer. But through it all, we've seen Jesus. And as we study this last lesson, we pray that once again we may be led and that each of us in our personal lives may know that you are present and that you are faithful. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text is Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Let's read that again. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. The destruction of end-time Babylon is bad news for those who collaborated with this apostate religious system. For God's people, however, it is good news, as we read in Revelation 19, verses 1 through to 7. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honour and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up for ever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Babylon was responsible for inducing the secular political powers to persecute and harm them, as we read in Revelation 18.24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints, and of all who were slain on the earth. The destruction of this great adversary means deliverance and salvation for God's faithful people. With the destruction of Babylon, the prayer of God's people in the scene of the fifth seal is ultimately answered. Their cry, How long, O Lord, in Revelation 6.10, represents the cry of God's oppressed and suffering people from Abel to the time when God will finally vindicate them. As we read in Psalm 79, verse 5, How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. And Daniel 12, verses 6 and 7. 
And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfilment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives for ever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time, and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. The book of Revelation assures God's people that evil, oppression and suffering will come to an end. It is now time for Christ to usher in his everlasting kingdom. The remaining chapters of Revelation describe not just the destruction of end-time Babylon, but also the destruction of Satan and all evil. We get glimpses too of the establishment of God's everlasting kingdom. Sunday, March 24, The Wedding Supper of the Lamb Question, read Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9, along with John 14, 1 to 3. How does a wedding supper appropriately illustrate the long-awaited union between Christ and his people? Revelation 19, beginning at verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And John fourteen one to 3 Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Two thousand years ago, Christ left his heavenly home to invite his followers to a wedding supper, and that's recorded in Matthew 22, 1-14, that we'll read later. That will take place after his marriage to his bride. We read from the Great Controversy, page 426-428, to the marriage represents the reception by Christ of his kingdom. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, is called the bride, the Lamb's wife. In the Revelation, the people of God are said to be the guests at the marriage supper. Revelation 19.19 If guests, they cannot be represented also as the bride. In the parable of Matthew 22, the same figure of the marriage is introduced and the investigative judgment is clearly represented as taking place before the marriage. Previous to the wedding, the king comes in to see the guests, to see if all are attired in the wedding garment, the spotless robe of character, washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Matthew twenty-two eleven and Revelation seven fourteen. End of quote. 
After his death and resurrection, the bridegroom returned to his father's house to prepare a place for his people, his wedding guests, as we saw in John 14, to 3 They remain on earth, preparing for his return. At the end of the world, he will come back and take them to his father's house. Revelation 19, verse 8 states that the fine and clean linen was given to the bride by Christ, and we read that earlier. This apparel shows that the wedding guests who entered the city do not claim any merit for their deeds. Thus, the fine linen, clean and bright, represents the righteous acts of the saints. Acts that came as a result of their union with Christ, who lives in them. Thus, these robes symbolize his righteousness, and that his people keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, as it said in Revelation 14.12. While on earth, Jesus told a parable about a wedding. However, one of the guests preferred to wear his own attire instead of the wedding garment provided by the king, and he was expelled from the wedding. We read that in Matthew 22, beginning at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain man who arranged a marriage for his son, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, and one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, How did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Revelation 13 reads, I counseled you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Revelation 3.18 shows that the robe of Christ's righteousness, the gold of faith and love, and the eye salve of the Holy Spirit are the greatest needs of God's people living at the time of the end. Jesus' offer that the Laodiceans buy these gifts from him shows that he asks for something in exchange for what he offers us. We give up self-sufficiency and trust in ourselves in exchange for a life of faithful obedience to Christ and trust in him as our only hope of salvation. So, to finish today, we are not saved by our works, But what righteous acts do you do that define the life that you are living? 
Monday, March 25. Armageddon ends. Question. Read Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through to 16. What is the name of the rider of the white horse? And what does it mean that a sharp sword comes from his mouth? What does this tell us about how to be on the winning side in the end? Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What we see here is a depiction of Christ's second coming, the fulfilment of the promise that believers in all ages have been longing for. Like Jesus, his people have based their faith on God's word. Revelation 19, 11-16, which we've just read, is the culmination of Jesus' many victories. Jesus defeated Satan in heaven. He defeated Satan in the wilderness. He defeated him at the cross, and he will defeat him at his return. And from the Great Controversy, page 640 and 641, we read, Soon there appears in the east a small black cloud, about half the size of a man's hand. It is the cloud which surrounds the Saviour, and which seems in the distance to be shrouded in darkness. The people of God know this to be the sign of the Son of Man. In solemn silence they gaze upon it as it draws nearer the earth, becoming lighter and more glorious until it is a great white cloud, its base a glory like consuming fire, and above it the rainbow of the covenant. Jesus rides forth as a mighty conqueror. Not now a man of sorrows to drink the bitter cup of shame and woe, He comes, victor in heaven and earth, to judge the living and the dead. Faithful and true, in righteousness, he doth judge and make war, and the armies which were in heaven, Revelation 19, 11 and 14, follow him. With anthems of celestial melody, the holy angels, a vast unnumbered throng, attend him on his way. The firmament seems filled with radiant forms, ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands. No human pen can portray the scene, no mortal mind is adequate to conceive its splendour. End of quote. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, Paul gives another depiction of the ultimate victory of Christ at the second coming, when all the secular and religious powers which have conspired against him are destroyed, and his people are delivered for all eternity. Second Thessalonians 
1, beginning at verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. And so to finish today, Revelation 19 describes two suppers, one in verse 9, and that reads, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And another in verses 17 and 18. And that reads, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. At one supper you eat, at the other you get eaten. It's hard to imagine a starker contrast of what's at stake in the whole great controversy for every human being. What should this imagery teach us about how seriously we need to take our faith and the mission that our faith calls us to participate in? Tuesday, March 26, the Millennium. Question, read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, along with Jeremiah 4, verses 23 to 26. During the Millennium, what is the state of the earth? In what way is Satan bound by chains? Revelation 20, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released." For a little while. And Jeremiah 4, verses 23 to 26 I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. The 1,000 years, or millennium, begin with the second coming of Christ. At this time, Satan and his fallen angels are chained. The chaining of Satan is symbolic, because spiritual beings cannot be physically bound. Satan is bound by circumstances. The plagues have desolated the earth and killed off its evil inhabitants bringing it into a chaotic condition resembling the earth before creation, which we read about in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form 
and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In such a state, the earth functions as Satan's prison during the millennium. Because there are no human beings to tempt and harm, all that Satan and his demonic associates can do is contemplate the consequences of their rebellion against God. Question. Read Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through to 6. Where are the redeemed during the millennium? And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished." This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Revelation shows that God's people will spend the millennium in the heavenly places that Christ prepared for them, as we read in John fourteen one to 3 Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be. Also, John sees them sitting on thrones as kings and priests, judging the world. Jesus promised the disciples that they would sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, in Matthew 19, verse 28. Paul states that the saints would judge the world in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? This judgment concerns the fairness of God's actions. Throughout his history, Satan has raised doubts concerning God's character and his dealings with the beings he created. During the millennium, God allows the redeemed to access the records of history in order to find answers to all questions concerning the fairness of his decisions regarding those who were lost, as well as questions dealing with his leading in their own lives. At the conclusion of the millennium, all questions regarding God's justice are forever settled. God's people are able to see beyond a shadow of doubt that Satan's accusations were unfounded. They are now ready to witness the administration of God's justice at the final judgment of the lost. And so to finish the day, who among us doesn't have questions, hard questions, that for now seem to have no answers? What does it tell us about the character of God that one day he will give us the answers? Wednesday, March 27, a new heaven and a new earth. 
After the eradication of sin, the earth will be transformed into the home of the redeemed. What will it be like? In Revelation 21.1, John saw a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible refers to three heavens, the sky, the starry universe, and the place where God dwells. We read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2. I know a man in Christ who, fourteen years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. In Revelation chapter 21, 1, the earth's atmosphere is in view. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. The contaminated earth and the sky cannot endure God's presence, as we read in Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. The word new in Greek, kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S, refers to something new in quality, not in origin and time. This planet will be purged by fire and restored to its original state, as we read in Second Peter three ten to eleven. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Particularly interesting is the fact that the first thing John observes on the new earth is that there is no sea. John's reference to the sea, with the definite particle, shows that he probably had in mind the sea that surrounded him or Patmos, which had become a symbol of separation and suffering. For him, the absence of that sea on the new earth meant absence from the pain caused by his separation from those whom he loved. Question. Read Revelation 21, verses 2 to 8, and Revelation 7, verses 15 to 17. What parallels exist in the description of the new earth and the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2? Revelation 21, beginning at verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. 
He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, and Revelation 7, beginning at verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And in Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had found formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hiddekel. It is the one that goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not, a f not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. A life 
free of suffering and death on the restored earth, is guaranteed by God's presence among his people. His presence is manifested in the new Jerusalem and the tabernacle of God, as it says in Revelation 21 verse 3, where God will dwell among his people. The presence of God makes life truly a paradise in the restored earth. God's presence guarantees freedom from suffering, no death, sorrow, crying or pain, which are all the consequences of sin. With the eradication of sin, the former things have passed away, as it says in Revelation 21 verse 4. This idea was well articulated by Mary and Martha at the death of their brother Lazarus. In John 11:21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The sisters knew that death could not exist in the presence of Christ. In the same way, the abiding presence of God on the new earth will secure freedom from the pain and suffering that we now experience in this life. This freedom is the great hope that is promised to us in Christ, a hope sealed in his blood. And so to finish the day, why is this promise of a new existence in a new world so central to all that we believe? What good would our faith be without it? Thursday, March 28, The New Jerusalem John now describes the capital of the new earth, the New Jerusalem. While a real place inhabited by real people, the New Jerusalem and life in it are beyond any earthly description, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Question. Read Revelation 21, verses 9 to 21. What are the exterior features of the new Jerusalem? Revelation 21, beginning at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. He measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like 
clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. The New Jerusalem is referred to as the bride, the Lamb's wife. The New Jerusalem is the place that Christ is preparing for his people, as we read in John fourteen one to 3 Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The city is surrounded by a high wall with twelve gates, three gates on each of the four sides, allowing entry from any direction. This feature points to the universal scope of the city. In the New Jerusalem, everybody has unlimited access to God's presence. The city is further pictured as a perfect cube. It is 12,000 furlongs, or stadia, in length, width and height. The cube consists of 12 edges, thus the city totals 144,000 stadia, which reflects the 144,000 who were translated without seeing death at the second coming of Jesus. In the Old Testament temple, the most holy place was a perfect cube, as we read in 1 Kings 6.20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. The New Jerusalem thus functions as the centre of the worship of God. Question, read Revelation 21, verses 21 through to chapter 22, verse 5. What interior features of the city remind you of the Garden of Eden? What is the significance of the promise that there will be no more curse in the city in chapter 22, verse 3? Revelation 21, beginning at verse 21. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of the God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the thrones of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign for ever and ever. The most prominent feature of the New Jerusalem is the river of water of life flowing from God's throne. As we uh, read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 10 earlier, But let's read it again. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. In contrast to the river in Babylon, at which God's people were sitting as captives, longing for Jerusalem, as described in Psalm 137, on the banks of the river of life in the new Jerusalem, God's wandering people of all ages have found their home. Psalm 137 reads, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let me, my right hand, forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us, happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. On both sides of the river is the tree of life, with leaves for the healing of the nations, as it says in Revelation 22, verse 2. This healing does not refer to disease, as on the new earth there will be no disease. It refers to the healing of all the wounds caused by the barriers that have torn people apart throughout history. The redeemed of all ages and from all nations now belong to one family of God. Friday, March 29. The book of Revelation concludes with what was introduced at the beginning, the second coming of Christ in power and glory, and the establishment of God's everlasting kingdom. The return of Christ, when he finally will be united with his bride, is the climactic point in the book. However, the book does not put these events in an unrealistic context. That Jesus is coming soon is the first reality. The second reality is that we are still here, waiting for his return. While waiting, we must have a clear comprehension of the messages of Revelation, and we can get this understanding by reading the book again and again until the end of all things comes. 
The messages of the book of Revelation constantly remind us, while we wait, not to look to the things of the world, but to fix our eyes on heaven and on him who is our only hope. The Christ of Revelation is the answer to all human hopes and longings amid the enigmas and uncertainties of life. He holds the future of this world and our future in His hands. The book also reminds us that before the end comes, we are entrusted with the task of proclaiming the message of His soon return to all the world. Our waiting for His return is not passive, but active. Both the Spirit and the Bride call, Come, in Revelation 22, verse 17. We must join that call. It is the good news, and as such, it must be proclaimed to the people of the world. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for today. 1. Think about the millennium and the judgment of the unrighteous dead that occurs only after the millennium. The saved will have a thousand years to get all their questions answered. Only then will God bring final punishment upon the lost. What does this truth reveal to us about God? And 2. Revelation 1 verse 3 promises blessings to those who listen, read, heed and keep the words of the prophecies of Revelation. As we conclude our study of this book, what are the things you have discovered that you need to heed and keep? And so we'll finish with Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Exposed to HIV twice, and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. Maria Limos Abel, a Seventh-day Adventist nurse, asked a mother to hold her two-year-old daughter firmly for an injection of penicillin G procaine to treat a bacterial infection. But the mother didn't heed the instructions, and Maria accidentally jabbed the syringe into her left index finger when the baby jumped in pain at the state hospital in Nampula, Mozambique's third largest city. Following hospital policy, Maria immediately ran blood tests on the mother and baby. In 30 minutes, she had the results. Both were HIV positive. Maria began to cry. She had worked with many HIV-positive patients, and she knew that the virus is transferred easily through blood. Lord, help me not to contract HIV, she prayed. A hospital physician instructed Maria to take ARV drugs, which suppress the HIV virus, twice a day for the next month. After that, she would have to wait another five months to learn whether she had contracted HIV. My heart hurt while I waited, Maria, a mother of four, said in an interview, I didn't know what would happen. She also prayed fervently for God to intervene. A half year after the accident, Maria's results came back negative. She had not contracted HIV. I believe that it was an answer from God, Maria said. I praise the Lord. 
Three years later, in March 2017, a 30-year-old female patient jumped when Maria made a small incision on a swollen arm. The scalpel cut Maria's left thumb, drawing blood. Maria ran a blood test on the patient and it came back HIV positive. Maria couldn't believe it. She wept as she took ARV drugs. She prayed as she waited six months to take the HIV test. The test came back negative. Maria, 51 years old, shares her experience with women hospitalised after sexual assault and recommends ARV drugs and prayer. I say, God saved me from something that wasn't my fault, and he can also save you from something that wasn't your fault, she said. At least three women have tested negative after following Maria's advice. Two were sexual assault victims, and the third was a nurse accidentally exposed to HIV at the hospital. It is a miracle that I have never contracted HIV, and I tell others about the power of prayer and the Lord, Maria said. Part of this quarter's 13th Sabbath offering will help open an orphanage for children who have lost their parents to HIV and AIDS in Nampula, where Maria works. Thank you for your mission offering. And just before we finish today, uh, in just two days' time, I'm having uh, an operation on my left eye. Uh, I've had it on my right eye already six weeks ago to remove the cataract lens and put in a beautiful new clear lens. So hopefully in next quarter's lessons, I will make fewer reading mistakes. And I hope you'll bear with me for any that you've noticed in this quarter's lessons. May God bless each of us as we follow him and as we realize that God is always faithful. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.